Welcome everyone to Navigating Education, the podcast. This is uh, episode number 16 of our interview series. It's about music, learning, racial bias, and social media with Dr. Malik Boykin. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So his bio is just a little bit about him. Definitely an interesting person to talk to, and I'm excited to have him here. Um, He has basically two names. He has his professional name and real name, Malik, Dr. Malik Boykin, but he also has his performing name, AKA Malik Stars. And he is currently a assistant professor at Brown University within the School of Cognitive, Linguistic and Psychological Sciences. He is the first black professor of psychology at Brown University. Uh, Dr. Boykin received his doctorate in social and personality psychology from UC Berkeley, his MA in social and organizational psychology from Teachers College, Columbia University, and his BS in psychology from the University of Maryland uh, University College after first attending Howard University. He was a presidential postdoctoral fellow for two years at Brown University in the Department of Cognitive Linguistic and Psychological Sciences before his current faculty appointment. His research focuses on intergroup relations, hierarchy, prejudice, mentorship, and racial identity. So. Um, this is going to be a, a great conversation. And first, just I want you to add a little bit about yourself. So what is your context in education right now? And then how are you currently navigating education? Then just spend a few minutes talking about what are you doing on a day-to-day basis and talk about what are some current projects that you're working on? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And thanks for the the introduction. And, you know, one thing that's, that's uh, also kind of interesting is that my full name is Curtis Malik Starks Boykin. That's what the C is for. Okay. It doesn't yeah, say yeah. like, it doesn't say Curtis. Right, like right, 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 right. Yeah. So I, go, I go by Malik Starks, my, my two middle names. And okay. Uh, then the, 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 uh, the C, the, the Curtis is what my dad calls me. And that's the end of the Got list. it. It's like a family <laughs> name. Got it. Yeah. hundred, hundred, hundred percent. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, super happy to be here. Uh, I'm, um, as you said, I'm a professor at, at Brown university. And, you know, what that looks like is a lot of research, uh, a lot of uh, supporting my students in learning how to do research and uh, finding questions that we like to chase down together. And, um, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of survey research now that we're in the, the midst of the, the pandemic, you know, even though we're, we're kind of opening up from it, but it, it's been a a era where doing a lot of research experiments that you can do on the internet uh, has been, you know, the best, best use of my time since getting people into the research lab uh, for social psychology experiments. It's just been, you know, really tough. Now, I also um, do volunteer work through my fraternity, Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, which uh, causes me to, you know, develop uh, summer programs for local middle school and to uh, speak to students about STEM careers and things of that nature. So I'm not only working with the university students and the graduate students, but I also try to, uh, you know, get out into the community here and, um, and, and contribute in those kinds of ways, uh, which is also neat for me, uh, given that I'm a second generation professor and my father does a lot of research on education, uh, specifically thinking about how to bring the cultural assets that 
uh, many students have at home and in their communities into the classroom. So I worked for him for a couple of years before I went out to graduate school. So I also have a, uh, you know, kind of a background in contributing to education reform uh, research and, uh, and, and things like that. So yeah, social, social experiments on one side, uh, working a lot on uh, algorithmic bias right now is, is dominating the conversation given the fact that many decision algorithms that are out here in the world making decisions all the way from, you know, uh, cancer screening to, to, you know, loan, you know, who, who is a high risk mm -hmm. or defaulting on a loan or who should get bail. Uh, if you audit these algorithms, they're often, you know, disparately, you know, uh, um, disadvantaging, further disadvantaging minorities and people of color. And, uh, you know, we are building a, a body of psychology research um, around what to do about this uh, and what is the diversity of opinions of, of how to solve this problem that we maybe can find some solutions that are, are under, under represented. Mm -hmm. No, totally. Yeah. And I, I think that's amazing. And has any of your work recently made like headways with uh, big tech? You know, not just yet. The, uh, the research is very new. Uh, the step one for us was to figure out where the gaps in the, the literature were. And what we've done over the last several months is design a new set of uh, software tools that will measure this uh, and people measure kind of where people stand on algorithmic bias, <clears throat> given that our survey tool has some complexities to it that don't uh, currently exist on, on platforms. They're just kind of new ways of asking questions. But we just finished this, the software, maybe, uh, maybe as of today's meeting, uh, and the, um, the IRB here at Brown is just approved it for us. And so, you know, this is, um, I mean, we're at the, the edge of, of us tipping this off to stay, to sale and really answering some, some questions that I think are pretty neat to ask. That's amazing. I'm sure you're really excited for that. Those next steps. So excited. Yeah. That's amazing. So besides your research, I know that you're also really into music. And my question to you is, have you always really been into music or has it been kind of like accelerated because we've been in a pandemic? Some people have picked up hobbies even more since they've been locked down at home. Um, I know I have been doing a few things, for example, like podcasting. I never podcasted before the pandemic. So it's just something that I picked up. Um, have you always been into music? And then uh, I know that you have a song called Dancing uh, for Freedom, which has become quite a popular song. and did the following just happen immediately or how did you uh, build a following with that song? Yeah. So uh, I started writing hip hop songs when I was in about the fifth grade, fourth grade, fourth grade. Uh, I had a rap group with my buddy, Dwayne Holmes, who's now a software developer. Uh, actually, he just reached out to me on LinkedIn the other day, but um, my grandfather, was a professional jazz musician. 
my mother grew up, uh, you know, playing the piano and singing. And so I, you know, I grew up in a, a relatively, uh, a, well, a household of music fans. My father did not play music himself, but obviously was raised by, you know, a, a touring musician. And it was in the family, you know, we get together for, for family gatherings and the cousins are singing and I would get up and rap, right? And uh, in middle school, I thought I was going to be the next hip hop sensation, the next kind of, you know, kid, you know, teenage rapper or whatever. And I was taking um, myself to hip hop conferences and, you know, paying my admission fees and getting my badge and walking around talking to adults and music execs, pushing my demo tape, um, you know, to, and, you know, talking to, to people who were like celebrities at that point in time, like, hey, I rap too, like, you know, uh, you know, and that part of my uh, uh, life uh, was huge. You know, I actually left college the first time uh, I left Howard University to pursue a career in hip hop. And at that period in time, there were a lot of people who had left Howard University to pursue careers in hip hop that really made it big, right? Like, you know, Puff Daddy is on that, that, that particular list. Um, I, I'm not on the list of people that made it big yet, but um, it was a, a not an unreasonable <laughs> choice. And, um, you know, it didn't totally pan out, but I uh, essentially dropped out of the band. I dropped out of the, of the band and back into school. Uh, and so, yeah, and uh, it's been a, a part of my identity uh, pretty much the whole way through. Yeah. yeah so uh, with your, with your song, how, when did it become popular? When did it, um, when you start getting a following for it? Yeah. So I have a holdover, a bit of a holdover following from, you know, trying to make it uh, as an artist some years ago and a, you know, wide base of just friends, uh, uh, a diversity of friends that I picked up along the way. And people started sharing it. And, you know, we got, uh, we reached out to a number of dancers. Uh, one of my, my teammates, uh, shout out to, to Kizzy Parks, had this strategy of like touching base with dancers on uh, Instagram and TikTok. And dancers were like, oh my God, I love this song. I wanna, I'll make a routine to it. And uh, just started picking up from there. So next thing you know, some, some videos were getting hundred thousand plays and you know uh, uh things of that nature and um yeah people that i had never talked to or never met were you know picking it up and making their own interpretations and dances mm -hmm. uh literally uh on six continents i you know just kind of like holy smoke like where in the world is this person like whoa you're in Myanmar and you're dancing to my tune like how did you even find this you know uh and it was uh yeah it it, it continues to be a, a a source of joy for me uh that I put something out there meaningful that it seems like it's resonating with people and, and uh on top of that we're in the middle of working on the music video for the song right now so expect some some pretty cool visuals uh to to be accompanying that song uh, on, on the way. I'm sure you were definitely inspired by everyone that is doing their own TikToks and whatnot of it. And oh, yeah. uh, definitely uh, probably has inspired a lot of that video. Um, 
So are you actually a, like, I know that it seems like a lot of people probably did all these dances on TikTok. Do you, do you use the platform very often? You know, I do use the, I, I, often is a strong word. I certainly post on TikTok and, uh, you know, I've gotten, uh, you know, a couple of thousand followers of my own and I'm growing the following on there and engaging with people on there. But, uh, but I'm still getting used to, you know, I'm posting once or, you know, once a week kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not quite the, the two, three times a day. Uh, yeah. Posting that, that, You're kind uh, of a busy guy. Well, yeah, yeah. There's that. Yeah. Cause, cause he's like, yeah, post more, post more. And I, I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working more content to come soon to come. Yeah. I know it's all about the content. So let's talk a little <laughs> bit about, um, uh, TikTok is just a platform. I know my students and I know that, uh, you know, adults even go on there and they learn. I mean, people mm -hmm. post like how to, um, like, I know a lot of women post to get ready or they, or people post like repairing something or um, those type of videos. So I think TikTok is um, what we call like bite-sized learning in the 21st century. And I think it's, I mean, I think we learn pretty well in bite-sized chunks. I think they do an amazing job with that. Although I think that with, I think you could talk a lot about this is that there are biases within probably TikTok regarding like who you follow and what type of stuff comes up. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of bad things on TikTok or like immoral, racial, et cetera. And that can affect like our perceptions and how we learn. So how do you think, a, you know, a, a like big tech like TikTok, I mean, does, does the algorithm for them need to be um, regulated so that we can filter out the racism, filter out a lot of the, the negativity on TikTok because people are learning on it and it can alter our perceptions? Or do you think something like that should be, you know, the algorithm should be unregulated? I definitely believe that algorithms uh, should be regulated. And, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that algorithmic bias shows up, right? Like uh, a lot of uh, algorithms have been, uh, including, you know, TikTok algorithm among others, uh, well, uh, Twitter algorithm among others have been known to uh, recognize and privilege uh, lighter skin and white faces. Um, and that is, uh, you know, will definitely bias what to show up in, in people's feeds. And the, the issue with, um, you know, racially violent content and things of that nature, I mean, that just, uh, you know, that really should just be uh, suppressed. You know, folks are, are um, you know, there, there's emotional reactance to this kind of stuff and it's really showing up and, and causing harm uh, for people that are, are, you know, caused to view this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, the, the unconscious mind also is like, you know, taking this stuff in indiscriminately as well. And so, you know, where you can multiply negative ideas and, and, and teach them to people, this, this platform scales this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's just, uh, you know, that's just something that, that needs more attention for sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in terms of um, education, I've certainly learned plenty of things on, on TikTok. And I was also uh, inspired by the fact 
that many educators took to our song. Uh, there was uh, Lachey Greenwood, Miss Greenwood, who's a teacher uh, who made a couple of skits to our songs and, and you know, got it out to, to uh, many students and parents and other educators. And there were educators who were, uh, you know, showing books that could help yep. uh, teach children about diversity uh, and, and things of that nature that were also part of the, part of the campaign. So I do think that TikTok does a... a you know, there's a lot of positivity that that is uh, on the platform and that can emanate from the platform. But also, I feel like the negative messaging really uh, just just needs to be, you know, curtailed. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the social media for learning is like a dual edged sword. There's there's it can be used for really good things and it also can be used for really bad things. So I think that um, definitely there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but I think that um, the good things are, I think learning of the future is going to be really short bite size. And I think, you know, a platform like TikTok can be emulated for educational purposes, which is, I, I, I think that uh, hopefully, um, you know, that will eventually come to fruition where it could be just purely an educational platform where students learn and um you know for example in some of your classes that you teach you could create your own like you know five or so videos that are tiktoks that are very short that you watch and then you come back and have a class discussion and maybe they'll create a similar type of tiktok where everyone can view in the discussion forum instead of a, a post i think there's just so many options that are available and um i know for my students especially at the k-12 level they um they tell me all the things that they learn about on TikTok. I had a few students the other day where they're starting their own um, business and they're doing manicures and they learn how to do different types on TikTok and they perform their business pitch to the class. And they really talked about that and what they learned there. And they're like, oh, we can, you know, emulate this and, and do it, um, you know, in the community. So I, I think it, it's definitely a powerful platform. Um, so as we, finish up our conversation here. I know that, you know, you grew up in a family of educators, you're an educator. Um, what are, you know, you know, one to two to three classroom practices that can help, uh, you know, teachers improve their, improve their teaching, improve their classroom culture. What are, what are your suggestions that, um, you know, if I was someone listening to this, um, I could implement tomorrow in my classroom? Yeah, in the spirit of, uh, you know, following my father's work on, you know, uh, this, this buzzword, like culturally relevant pedagogy, but, you know, what that, that actually means uh, for me in the implementation is to really tie the things that you're talking about to the lived experiences of the audience, the lived experience of the students. And sometimes that's best done by them. And so I leave a lot of room uh, in my lessons, my lesson planning, to really ask students about their lived experiences and how the things that we're uh, talking about in any given uh, uh, day in the class really maps on to things that they've seen in their lives. I ask them to draw parallels and you, you get them talking and, and I think that there's just a lot of critical thinking that goes into an exercise like that. And it, it really leads them to remember the ideas uh, 
when they, they can be made real uh, uh, for them. So that's certainly one of the things that I do. Uh, and uh, relatedly, I also, inspired by my professor, Jaya John, who was my social psychology professor at Howard University, who actually left academia to become a poet. I also yield time in my uh, classroom for students to uh, be able to bring poetry or musical expressions or some types of artistic expressions that help to uh, illustrate points uh, that we're reading about or that we're collectively talking about. And, you know, art is so dynamic and there's, you know, uh, obviously so many kinds of art and art in, in many ways has really documented human history over time and has uh, expressed all sorts of emotions and captured all kinds of, uh, you know, just conflicts and events and so on and so forth. So there's almost always an appropriate way to intertwine art with, you know, the kinds of things that, that I talk about in a psychology classroom, but they can be talked about in many kinds of, of, of classroom settings. And I, I think that that kind of connection also just br brings a lot of uh, motivation. It allows uh, students to bring a piece of themselves to the classroom and allows them to tie something that they're learning about to a thing that, that they have some emotional attachment to already. And I, I think that uh, both of those things are related. And I think that they make uh, the, the conversations uh, more lively, uh, more important, more memorable, and um, you know, just really facilitate learning and uh, celebrate the culture and humanity of the students in ways that just, you know, I know how to teach the lesson and I'm gonna give it to you the way that, that I wanna give it to you. Sometimes they'll draw insights that you never would have been able to have access to uh, if you just authorized them to do so. No, that, that, I love it. Uh, I love that personalization with the artistic, um, there are own artistic uh, style to it, intertwining it with the content. That's, that's awesome. I think that, you know, that choice and personalized learning with the content of how you can articulate the content um, and skills is, I, I, that's, that's the learning of the future. And there's so many different ways and there's so many pieces of technology now to uh, articulate that, which is just amazing that we can provide in our classrooms. I mean, if you think about it, you know, 10 to 20 years ago, we couldn't have a student record their own Flipgrid 30 seconds of them rapping their own performance. Um, or for example, of someone creating a GIF of, you know, their lyrics or of their main points that they found from the text that they're reading. I mean, there's just so many different ways to articulate ourselves and just so many ways to integrate the arts into um, our curriculum. I think that you would really enjoy the conversation I had with Dr. Neil Anderson on, on that conversation of intertwining the arts and content I had uh, a few weeks ago, which that episode will uh, post in early July. And I also really enjoyed your conversation on uh, culturally relevant uh, culturally responsive pedagogy as um, an episode that I'm actually posting next week with Dr. Jacera Hines is on um, just really how do we um, implement culturally responsive pedagogy across entire school site and district. So I think that it's just just being extremely relevant, giving those students the choice, you know, meeting them 
with their interests, giving that, them that platform and to amplify their voice is, is huge. And with that, I really appreciate you being here, uh, Dr. Boykin. And I hope that our listeners can tune in and tune into this episode as well as other episodes as we're going to be posting about one per week in the month of July and August with educators from across the world that I'm interviewing and how they're navigating the present and future of education. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for this great conversation and thanks for this platform and all that you do. Thank you so much. Yeah.